Welcome back to Pandanomics, a series exploring the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on Canadians and the Canadian economy. My name is Stephen Maurice. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives. Today, I'm joined by Raj Viswanathan, Group Head and Chief Financial Officer at Scotiabank. As CFO at Scotiabank, Raj doesn't only keep watch over the bank's finances, he also needs to stay on top of the trends and headwinds of the economy more broadly. He's a keen observer of the Canadian and global economies, and we're happy to have him with us today to discuss some of the big picture economic issues that are affecting Canadians' pocketbooks now and as we're heading into or in a second year of, uh, of the pandemic. Raj, welcome to Pandemics. Thank you very much, Stephen. My pleasure. So maybe I'll, I'll ask you to start just to give us a brief uh, explanation of what exactly it is that a CFO does. What, what is it? What, <laughs> I, I don't know how brief you could make that, but uh, maybe just like a broad idea. Yeah, I think apart from being responsible for all the bank's finances, as you mentioned, my role also covers treasury, which is how we fund the bank and ensure that some of the excess funds that the bank always will carry is appropriately invested for the benefit of all stakeholders. And then I have a couple of other roles, which covers, um, you know, strategic transactions review, which is our M&A group. It covers uh, global economics, which is our economics group. And it also covers investor relations, which is how we interact with primarily our debt and equity investors. And finally, it also covers a group called procurement, uh, where we are responsible to run the global procurement services of the bank. So a little broad based but a very privileged position as far as I'm concerned, gives me a front row seat to everything that pretty much happens around the institutions. It helps me make a difference. And finally, it's a very humbling position to be in. Every day you learn something and you you really learn how much you don't know. Yeah, you wear a lot of a lot of different hats. It sounds like, uh, and uh, many different responsibilities, and lots of things that you need to know. Uh, so uh, we'll be able to pick your brain on a whole bunch of different subjects here, and and we'll start where, as I said, we're uh, you know well into the second year now of uh, of COVID. It's been ups and downs over the course of the past year. A real roller coaster ride for everybody. Uh, you know, after the second wave, and you know, heading into the new year. Uh, the economy was starting to pick up, employment starting to pick up, uh, and then we hit a third wave. So that's going to have its own types of impacts. How do you see the next, the next three, the next six months uh, roll out from a, from a broader economic perspective? We'll start with Canada. Sure. I think overall, whether it's Canada, the United States, or even uh, some of the Pacific Alliance countries that the bank operates in and is fairly large, Overall, I would say continuously improving macroeconomics, without a doubt. Whether it's the unemployment situation, GDP growth forecast that people have been putting out, interest rate cuts that have helped, you know, uh, support the economy throughout the process. All of which I would say, you know, contributes to our view that there is continuous improvement across the macroeconomic footprint and across the countries. Canada specifically, Canada is showing, in my mind, pretty close to a V-shaped recovery. We've gone through a difficult situation, significant level of government support that has helped, you know, all stakeholders around the economy and whether governments, central banks and so on, who have stepped in big time to help uh, both the population as well as keep the economy stable. You're seeing the results of it. And we realize that, you know, you need all parties to, to act effectively, something that we learned from the global financial crisis in 2008 to ensure that the economy actually functions and the recovery tends to be a quick recovery, even if it's not in timelines. 
Is there more time to go? Absolutely there is. But if you had asked most of us, you know, six months, nine months back, is this what you would see? Some would have guessed this, many were not in this space. So that's room for lots of optimism and how the economic recovery has played out. Lots of liquidity in the system. Likewise, in our Pacific Alliance countries, they've done it slightly differently because they don't have the, uh, you know, some of the social support system that we have here. Governments could write checks. Countries like Chile and Peru have used their pension plans to allow people to withdraw money from their pension plans. Typically, Stephen, the way it works and economic recovery comes through from what we've learned in the last year is people feel comfortable. And if they have money in their pockets, you start seeing them becoming more comfortable in how they interact through their spending habits. That's exactly how we're seeing it playing out. And I think that's a big factor in why we feel more optimistic about the economic recovery process, both what is happening at this time and how we see it happening over the next few months. You mentioned the the global economic crisis from 2008, 2009. How, how does it compare? You would have lived through that experience uh, in the bank and uh, the measures that were taken at that time. How, you know, whether it's personally or in your, in your professional capacity, what would you say are the similarities or differences between the way these very different types of crisis, crises played out and how they were dealt with? At the outset, I think there's lots of differences because this one is very global. It's a pandemic driven. It's not driven by one industry or impacting one industry. The global financial crisis, as the term implies, you know, applied primarily to the financial services industry. It started from, you know, a couple of failures that happened, whether it's Lehman or, or those kind of companies that people point to, where there was an overheated economy driven by perhaps a level of leverage, which was uh, in, in hindsight inappropriate, particularly in the retail borrowing space. So it's very different at, at the outset on how these things have started. The, the current crisis we're going through is also significantly bigger because it's impacted pretty much every, every person in this world, you know, is, is subjected to being exposed to this pandemic and therefore, you know, impact their personal lives as well as their economic lives. So it's, vastly different, but certainly what we learned from the global financial crisis has helped governments and the banking industry significantly deal through this process. One example I'd quote, one of the key learnings we had from the global financial crisis was when a crisis hits, particularly if it's in the financial services, liquidity dries up immediately because people don't want to lend in an uncertain environment. That's just normal course behavior. So governments have learned from that. Part of what they've done is ensured that the banks were well capitalized through the last 10 years, through the actions they've taken, but also ensured during this process that there was significant liquidity that is provided by the central banks to the banking system to ensure that we continue to lend, we have the liquidity to ensure that we support all our uh, customers, whether it's corporate, commercial, or retail customers. That way we've ensured that the economy still continues to function in one phase or another, rather than during 2008 and 9, where many of us felt like everything was frozen. When liquidity does not flow, it impacts the economy as a whole. Key learning from then, lots of it was you know, used in spades, in my opinion, early in the pandemic process, say 12 to 13 months back. That has helped significantly both transitioning through the last 12 months, but also setting us up nicely for a good recovery looking forward. Right. Yeah, I think Canada received a fair amount of praise even back then, 2000, 
2008, 2009, in part because of the stability of its banking system, which uh, which helped which helped to get through it. I, I, we'll come back to that. I want to talk a little bit about the bank and uh, and uh, and how it's doing uh, a little bit later on. But I wanted to touch on a couple of issues that are you know that are very much of the moment and are important to people in their day to day lives. The first one is the you know incredibly hot housing market. Um, great time to be a seller. I guess, as long as you don't have to buy something else if you've got somewhere to go. Um, a difficult time maybe to be a buyer, but lots of people pouring pouring into the market. What are, you, what are your observations about what's going on right now? Is it going to carry on through the rest of the year? What are, what are the conditions that might lead to maybe a soft landing through something that looks like a bubble? Yeah, I think, you know, the Canadian housing price or the housing market has been subject of discussions for some time now amongst many stakeholders. I talk to a lot of investors. I talk to rating agencies. I talk to debt investors, for example, particularly those who don't live in Canada. They're surprised by the resilience of the Canadian housing market, obviously the increasing prices. And the term they do use is, is there a bubble? That's a question they ask us quite often. And, you know, they, they, they do multiple metrics they use. They use the, you know, the debt ratios that have been significantly climbing compared to the income levels of Canadians and so on. Um, our view has been fairly consistent over many years as Scotiabank that in Canada, there is a demand supply imbalance in the Canadian housing market and it's been there for some time. Simply put, you know, we don't build enough homes to match the demand whether the demand is coming from local growth in population or through immigration, which as you know, you know, Canada has the highest immigration levels among the G7 countries and has had it for many years now. And then you throw in low rates, which we are now uh, you know, in for many, many years and particularly over the last 12 months where there have been significant rate cuts. And there's a commitment almost that rates will not rise for the next two years or so, and that's getting shorter now. Unfortunately, all this put together results in higher prices, significant demand. I talked a little bit about how liquidity helps people think positively. There's lots of liquidity in the system. People have uh, have been sitting on liquidity. They've not been spending much. We've seen deposit rates grow significantly in the bank, and we're not alone. It's across the banking industry. Typically, this results in assets which people would like to accumulate. And in Canada, the most sought after asset is a home. So the Canadian housing price has significantly improved, particularly over the last few months and has been doing it for the last 10 years, really. The regulators have tried multiple actions and good ones in that, I should say. They introduced something called B20 regulations a few years back to limit the number of people who could qualify and increase the hurdles by which people could qualify. So that helped you know, to to support a little bit about the demand and ensure that, you know, people are not stretching themselves to buying homes, which are probably too expensive for uh, for their stage in life. They introduced a foreign buyer's tax. They've now more recently introduced a tax on unoccupied homes. So they want to ensure that they're able to manage the, um, you know, how the housing market behaves and how it might hurt people if there is... Uh, if there is a bubble that eventually bursts. They've not had its expected impact. They've had some impact, definitely positive impact without a doubt, but nothing which I would call transformational to support or not, you know, the level of housing demand that has happened in this country. We think that unless we find a way to fix a demand supply imbalance, 
it'll be a difficult address issue to address for everybody. That's not to suggest we shouldn't stop trying. I think we should stop trying. The banks, I can say without any hesitation, our lending standards have only gotten more difficult. We have tried to not loosen any of our lending standards. Our risk appetite remains significantly conservative. And therefore, you know, we believe that we are not funding the bubble in many respects, but we also want to be sure that we are prudent lenders because we don't want any of our customers to get hurt. But eventually it's going to be a demand supply situation that is going to play out. And once that plays out, you will see stability in the home prices. That would be our view. That's probably, as you said, like that's a longer term fix to the issue and building. I mean, I think housing starts are up quite a bit this uh, in over the the last couple of months, even compared to well, compared to a year ago, easily. But um, but the, the the supply side of the equation probably will take some time to fix. Interest rates are going to stay low eventually, and I think we'll talk about immigration in a moment. But eventually, the immigration numbers will start climbing back up after having slowed down. So that seems like you know all of the the ingredients for the continued sort of hot housing market are, are likely to continue to exist for uh, for some time. Yeah, I think you might see some slowdown, but I don't think you're going to see the big fall off. Yeah, and I guess Ospi recently had uh, announced some uh, some measures as well. I guess to try and uh, try and control a little bit on the on the buying side. Um, uh, on immigration, um, as you said, Canada uh, has led the way over the last several years uh, among G seven countries in welcoming people, and that's certainly been. The target of uh, of the Liberal government is to continue to even increase those numbers, uh, which had gone down, obviously, because of the pandemic last year. Uh, what What's your view? Do you think they will be able to climb back up and, and hit the targets that, they, that they've set? And how important is that to, to the Canadian economy continuing to grow? Yeah, no question about it. I think... Um... I, I would call it pent-up immigration because we have stopped it because of travel restrictions in my mind. Canada receives about 250,000 immigrants a year, you know, give or take a few thousand. That's been consistently around that level for many years. And it's a requirement to continue to grow this economy to your second question. It's absolutely going to have a positive impact on the economic recovery from the pent-up immigration. You know, whether 250,000 becomes 400,000 in a 12-month period to catch up, I don't know. But it's going to be something higher than 250,000. So this we know for sure, okay? That is good for Canada, it's good for housing, it's good for travel, it's good for many, many things. It's good for the future of this country. So I think the immigration policy, and I've been a beneficiary of one of them coming to this country 23 years back, I think is a good thing for this country and we get a lot of skilled immigration into the country and it certainly enhanced both the workforce, but also helped a lot of the fundamentals that is required for continuous growth in this economy. Now, how soon will this start? You know, it's a subject of speculation because it depends on the vaccine rollout and it'll track the rollout of the vaccine, not just here in Canada, but also in the countries from where most of the immigrants come to this country. So in my view, um, you know, immigration is a big part of the growth story in, in Canada, has been for many, many years. It'll continue to be. And in the short term, as a recovery happens, the borders open up, travel starts once again, immigrants start coming in, you're going to see a lot of positive momentum within the Canadian economy. Is that an issue that you hear about from from clients? I mean, before the pandemic, uh, 
from an employment perspective, you heard more about labor shortages than uh, than you did about unemployment. Really, uh, you know, again, that subsided a bit during the pandemic as the unemployment rate at least temporarily went up. But is that something that you still hear about from uh, from clients and customers of the bank of the importance of uh, of getting those numbers back up again? Yeah, I think skilled immigration is a key component to supporting all the industries we have in this country. You know, technology investments are a big part of certain sectors in the in the in the economy, which I think complements the the skilled labor. Absolutely, I think the requirement for skilled labor in this country is going to be continuously required, and I think they'll look forward to the immigration process being reopened again, and these people start coming into this country to support the growth in those particular sectors. Absolutely, in, in my mind, nothing has changed. I would say it's a pause and it's something that is once again going to create a big pent up demand, particularly for skilled labor. I wanted to ask you just about one uh, element of the recent uh, federal budget, sort of the, the signature item, I, I would say, one could argue, uh, of the budget was the government's commitments you know, of pretty significant dollars to uh, uh, making childcare more available, more accessible to Canadians. Um, is uh, do you do you share the view on the importance of that particular that particular measure, um, both in terms, of, I guess, of fairness, but again, also for the sake of the economy, are they are they linked? Absolutely. At a recent annual shareholders meeting, Brian Porter called for an annual top up of five thousand dollars per child to the child tax sorry Canada Child Benefit. We also advocated for a significant increase to the Canadian child tax credit to allow parents to fully deduct the cost of preschool childcare. So more often than not, women are the ones who set aside their career ambitions to ensure that their children receive quality care and education. I know we did it in our own family, right? So providing greater flexibility to families to find childcare arrangements that are best suited for them is good for women, it's good for families, and it's good for the country as a whole. Yeah, like you mentioned, that we we were you know pleasantly surprised and also positively uh, received the the proposals which was there in the seven hundred and thirty page budget document, which contains over a hundred billion dollars in new spending. But the national child care program, as well as additional support for you know lower income Canadians and small businesses to get through the pandemic and the pandemic recovery, all very important initiatives to support the recovery. But specifically on child care. The government proposal to spend up to $30 billion over the next five years and $8.3 billion each year after that to bring childcare fees down to $10 a day on an average by 2026, very laudable. I think it's very aspirational. And certainly, you know, we'd be very pleased if it, if it actually plays out the way that it's been proposed. But then it requires negotiations and bilateral agreements with the provinces, as you know, through any budget process. And it split the subsidies evenly, you know, with those provincial governments. And it uh, and it's targeting a 50% reduction in average childcare fees by the end of 2022 itself. So that's a really good start. Early success is going to support some of the future uh, targets that we have set ourselves at $10 a day for childcare. Extremely important, very close to us in Scotiabank, close to, you know, Brian Porter, as he talked about it at the annual meeting that I referenced. We are very pleased to see the initiatives within the budgets, amongst other things, particularly the childcare issue. Right. 
uh, I have to ask you, you didn't read the entire 728 pages of the budget, did you? It's like everything else I do in the bank. I have a lot of great people who work with me <laughs> who unfortunately have to have to go through a lot of material to give me some of the summaries. I've read a little bit of it, nowhere close to the 700 pages. Thank you. Okay, one final question for you. I said I was going to come back to uh, to the bank itself. And the, the question I, I have for you, maybe I hope it's not uh, too uncomfortable of one. Um, after a, a couple of bad quarters in, uh, in 2020, um, Canada's big banks have, I think, largely ba- bounced back in the last quarter to more or less uh, the levels of profitability that they that they were pre-pandemic. Um, banks take a lot of heat, I think, generally in online forums or just general grumbling about the about the amount of money that they make. What do you say if when people say that to you? And I don't know whether anybody ever does to your face, but you know that. Uh, uh, what do you say if people say the banks in Canada just make too much money? Yeah, I think um, it's it's um, it's not uh, it's not something that we we get asked very often, but I know it's in many people's minds. So I'm happy to provide my perspective. Uh, if I were ever be you know if I'm ever asked that question face to face, so to speak, but let me take us back a little bit about the purpose of the institution of the bank itself or the banking industry in any country, not necessarily Canada. We take our role to society very seriously. I think we do in Scotiabank, I believe all my peers do in, in Canada as well. We believe we are part of the social fabric of all the countries that we operate in, not just here, but you know, Latin American countries and so on. But let's take a step back to see what is really the function of the banking institution, credit, okay? Credit is a foundation on which economies operate and grow. Banks are the mechanism to provide credit to the economy. So we play a very important role and we understand that and we believe that that it's extremely important that we do that well. Apart from that, as most people know, we are highly regulated and we have to comply with multiple requirements, including pricing and sales practices, just to name a couple. So we can't just price any product the way we want or have sales practices which are not acceptable, where we force people to buy stuff that they should not be buying or need not buy. Specifically, in some of our Latin American countries, we have a role to move people from the informal economy to the formal economy over a period of time. I think most people will accept that an informal economy to a formal economy is going to help particularly vulnerable communities. So we have a role to play that and we understand that. But let me come back to the profitability question. Being a well-run profitable company with conservative risk appetite, and we do that, it puts us actually in a good position to support all stakeholders, including our customers in time of need. Profitability is what supports capital generation for the institution and capital is what we use to lend to all our customers. If I use credit as a foundation of what we do as a banking industry. For example, we provided significant deferral programs. I think most people know that through this pandemic of over $120 billion just in a few weeks that helped our customers tie through early difficult days. We had a number of programs we ran to ensure that people actually felt comfortable, that they could have money in their pocket or they'll have credit that is available to them. So they don't have to worry about at least one thing, but worry more about keeping their themselves and their families safe. We also play a big role in supporting the communities that we operate in. It's either through the multiple community programs that we're involved in, 
or through, you know, some of the early youth activities that we're involved in, for example, in Canada, through the Canada, through the hockey programs over here, we pay a lot of our taxes. You know, we pay fair amount of taxes in every economy that we operate in, and we ensure that we are good corporate citizens across. Profitability is an outcome of managing the company appropriately to ensure that we are able to also return a reasonable return to our shareholders because the shareholders are an important component of keeping this company going. So it's to ensure that all stakeholders benefit. The shareholders measure us by, you know, the level of growth that we have had and the dividends that we pay back to them. And our other stakeholders, such as our customers, want us to be there for them, particularly in times of need, but at all times to help them and provide them good advice. And we have a role that we play in the economy to support the economy as a whole. And likewise, like I mentioned, we have a role to play in the communities that we operate in. We do it all in a balanced manner under a highly regulated um, regime, I would say, across the world. And to ensure that we meet the highest standards, whether it's money laundering practices that we have, compliance practices that we incorporate within this company, or the sales practices that I refer to, to ensure that we're not selling products that people do not require or don't require it at the price at which they're paying. So we try to play a very balanced role. Profitability is an important component to ensure that we're able to play that continuously. I think that to us is the way we think about the corporation as a whole. We don't run it only for one stakeholder. We run it for multiple stakeholders. Right. And when you talk about shareholders, I mean, that's a broad base of the population as well, whether it's people, individuals who are saving for their own retirements or pension funds or whatever. It's not, you know, I mean, there's a broad number of people who benefit from who benefit from that as well. I think so, Stephen. I think we talk a lot about dividends in the in the bank and I'm sure across the other Canadian banks. Dividends are an important component of income that we provide back to a lot of the Canadians and over 60 percent of our um, investor base is Canadians, including through pension plans indirectly, like you mentioned. So, so we try to provide a lot of uh, returns back to the people at large across Canada and across the shareholder base that we have. So it's not run for one particular shareholder or sorry, stakeholder. I think it's run for multiple stakeholders. And one of it happens to be profitability, which is important to support our shareholder base. All right. That's great. Thank you for answering that and for all of your other answers. It's been a really interesting conversation. And I want to thank you for coming on Pandanomics. Likewise. Thank you very much for having me, Stephen. I've been speaking with Raj Vizwanathan, Group Head and Chief Financial Officer at Scotiabank. Thank you for listening to Pandanomics. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Google, or Spotify. See you soon. Please see the Scotiabank website for legal disclaimers.